Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, I'm joined by MCG Senior Consultant, Kate Homan. Welcome, Kate. Thanks, Stacey. Uh, Kate and I have the pleasure of going out and doing trainings together, so I'm so excited that she's here with me today so we can talk about how to establish a baseline with people in an interview, which is something we talk about uh, talk about a lot in our trainings. Um, and there's this one thing that happens a lot in forensic interviewing trainings that we also teach in ours, and it's called narrative event practice. So sometimes people hear those words and they're like, well, what does that mean? So that's what Kate and I are going to be talking about today. So Kate, let's start by just letting people know, because you're so good at teaching this. Uh, tell everybody what narrative event practice even is and why it's so important in an interview. Yes, I am a self-proclaimed narrative event practice nerd. Uh, narrative event practice is a tool used in forensic interviews, whether you're interviewing adults or children, that helps establish a baseline for communication. It helps set the baseline for how you are going to ask questions throughout the entire interview. It helps establish the level of detail that's expected from folks when they come into a forensic interview setting. And it gives the interviewee an opportunity to feel successful um, while continuing to develop some rapport and develop that connection that you have throughout the interview process. So I, I like that you brought up rapport because we talked about rapport in another episode. And so continuing rapport, because what we talk about is that it's a state, not a step. It's a continuation throughout the entire conversation. So when you talk about when we're interviewing people of all ages and being able to get that sort of baseline, helping them feel successful in the conversation, talk about what that looks like with this thing we call narrative event practice. How does an interviewer go about doing that well? So in order to do it well, they have to take the time to take the time, you know, really spend the time on figuring out, okay, if I ask this kind of question, what happens? And then if I try this kind of question, what happens? And so setting it up, you, you use an, a neutral event or even a positive event uh, that's in the interviewee's life. So what we always say in our trainings is to let the interviewee be the ex expert in their experiences. Nobody knows you know, the things that they've experienced better than they do. But as the interviewer, we guide the flow of the information and shepherd them along the way. And in narrative practice, we are, you know, figuring out what that looks like. And so this is a really op an opportunity for us to do this on something that's neutral or positive uh, in the interview process. And, and so what I hear you saying so far, too, is that it's practice both ways. So as the interviewers, we're sort of like test driving the questions and figuring out what makes the most sense or how interviewees are successful when we ask questions about something that's happened in their life that maybe they're excited to share with us or, like you said, it could even be you know, neutral or something positive. But then it's also good practice for the interviewee to share information with us because we're a stranger to them most of the time. So for them to be able to sit down and know sort of the types of questions we're going to be asking, so it's good practice like both ways. Am I getting that right? Yeah, so both the types of questions that we're going to be asking and 
and understanding the level of detail that we expect. I feel like a lot of times people walk into an interview and they don't understand how in depth we are truly going to go and how much work we are actually asking them to do. And so this is a great tool to help them understand that and increase comfort with the entire interview process. I also like how you said take the time to like take the time Mm -hmm. and it's almost like we have to make the time because so often just like we talked about in the episode about rapport people feel like they want to skip it or rush through it so when you say take the time to take the time how do you know once narrative event practice has been achieved or how do you know you're done with it? I think once you feel like you have that understanding of their communication, for so, for some people it's going to take longer than for other folks. Um, and then also, you know, minding the person that you're interviewing as well and saying, okay, do they have the comfortability with this for me to move on into the next phase of the interview? So it's, it's a balance always. Those game time decisions we have to make as interviewers with, am I spending too much time here? Um, or do I need a little bit more time here? And I, I could imagine it probably ebbs and flows. Um, you're making me think of a, of a case that I had where I had, uh, was interviewing, um, uh, maybe adolescent, I want to say maybe 12 year old, um, boy. And I was asking him all these questions about things he liked to do. And it was almost like he was annoyed with me because he knew why he was there. He knew what we were there to talk about. So then I started asking him about something he enjoyed doing. And I kept saying, Oh, tell me everything about the thing that he enjoyed. And he was like, why do you keep asking me that? So have you ever had that experience where people feel like, you know, they don't understand why you're asking so many questions about something that's different than the reason they came to see you, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like we have that all the time in, in the interview room where they're like, I don't understand why we're spending time to talk about this. I'm here to talk about this. And so one of the things that, that I do sometimes before I even start a narrative practice is set it up where I say something like, now I'm going to tell you about the way that I ask questions because the way that I ask questions is a little bit different. And to do that, we're going to practice it talking about insert chosen topic here right skateboarding or you know whatever the neutral or or their morning this morning or whatever's most appropriate for that person depending on the individual that's in front of you so I think that that's a great point so just sitting there and talking to people and asking them a bunch of questions might confuse them like what happened to me so I think for people who don't understand the importance of narrative event practice that might cause us to either skip it or rush through it but setting it up and making it a clear and predictable sort of transition and step within the interview, I think can probably alleviate some of that. So that's something we talk about in interviewing anybody, but particularly for people with disabilities, right? That clear and predictable Mm -hmm. um, setup of moving sort of from one topic of conversation to the next and how important that is. So I think, I think that's a great, like a great trick or tool for people to implement when they're maybe starting off with narrative event practice or not really sure if they're not doing it, how to incorporate it. So, so that's a great, that's a great tip. What, um, what kinds of details have you gotten from people that you think has in the narrative event practice phase that you think has served, you know, the interview or the investigation further as the, as the interview progressed and you get to the topic of concern? How do you feel like that's benefited people that you've interviewed? Well, what we know from research in kids, and this has been research in forensic interviewing that's been established for a long time, is that kids, when they do this sort of practice, they actually later in the interview, you know, give us more details when we're talking about the topic 
of concern. So when we're trying to figure out, okay, what is it that happened? They understand now, you know, the things that we're looking for and therefore provide more verbose sort of responses uh, to us, which is really useful uh, when it comes to gathering information about something that they've experienced. So, so I love how you said that because there's research to support it, right? We're not just making this stuff up and it really helps benefit later in the interview when we're getting the details about a potential crime or some you know neglect or abuse that happened so that law enforcement and prosecutors can then take that information and build a really good case if one exists and something happened so I, th- I think that it's great that we think about it taking the time to take the time and invest the time in narrative event practice and move you know sort of moving that forward so you mentioned that the research so far has been in kids, but talk about some of the things that are going on like in the field as far as interviewing people with disabilities of all ages or even adults without disabilities with this concept. Yes, so adults uh, without disabilities, it's a very new topic that's being broached, forensic interviewing period in adults without disabilities. Uh, And so there was a recent study that they've preliminarily said well, we think narrative practice enhances adults' comfort with the interview process, but they don't see that same shift in the amount of details as they do in uh, older children and uh, younger children. But it's still that here's what's going to happen while we talk today, which then helps adults understand, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing throughout this process and making it clear and predictable for them because it's not just folks with disabilities who benefit from that. That's literally everyone who benefits from the clear and predictable process and letting them know, okay, this is going to be how this is throughout this entire process and this is how I'm going to ask you questions so that you're prepared for once we get to that part where we're talking about the topic of concern. Yeah, I like how you made that really apply to everybody. So as I think even about our listeners, people who are listening to our podcast, yeah, think about your own life and the people, you know, that you interact with. And the more information you have about a conversation or before you go to a new place, the more information you have, the more comfortable you are. So even if the research doesn't tell us with adults that we'll get maybe more information later in the interview, it's still good to do and not skip because it may ease their anxiety help them be more comfortable with you in the conversation. And all of those things we know are good things in a conversation with somebody anyway, especially if we're going to be asking them questions about things that might be hard to talk about. And often in forensic interviews, that's exactly what we're about to do. Mm -hmm. So giving them that opportunity to have a reduced anxiety, be comfortable with us. And then ultimately it sounds like be more comfortable to share, even if the amount of detail so far in the research. And I like how you said that because it's new, right? Research could come out and tell us something, you know, completely different or could um, tell us the same thing that happens with uh, some of the research in kids. So I think that's great. Exciting. I love that forensic interviewing is being applied to lots of different people and that we can take the research there too. Mm -hmm. Um, What other things in uh, forensic interviewing do you think is helpful for adult populations? Well, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about with narrative practice is also in reducing interviewer anxiety. Uh, You know, if we spend the time in narrative practice and really establishing a baseline for communication, we have so much data that we can use later in the interview and understand truly how to help a person be successful in that process. So particularly when I'm thinking about, you know, interviews with both kids and adults with disabilities, I feel like I hear people a whole lot who say, oh, I'm just going to jump over this because I don't feel like they can do it. 
And then they get to the piece where they're trying to discuss the topic of concern. And they're like, man, I really wish I did this thing because now I'm noticing that I don't have that same information and I'm trying to figure it out on the fly when I'm speaking with somebody. So it makes me think of a case that I had. It was a 16-year-old boy with autism. And he... Uh, had communication, a communication style that really took me a while to figure out. You know, I introduced myself in the interview, started developing some rapport with him. And every time he would respond to me, he would take a long pause. It felt like forever. I know it was probably only 30 seconds, maybe less than that. And then he would go, hmm, and rub his chin. And then he would, he would slowly start to provide an answer And so that took a while to figure out that pacing in that interview and what kind of questions worked for him. And then I also had to figure out, okay, how do I know that he's finished expressing himself? Because it wasn't really in the tone of his voice. You know, everything was very monotone in the way that he expressed himself and very slow. So I was like, okay, how do I figure out that he's finished? And so I stayed there and I just kind of let him go and go and I paused. And then he goes, that's it. And then he did that throughout the entire interview process. And I can't tell you how helpful that was, you know, when discussing the topic of concern to know, okay, I'm pacing this okay still. He's finished expressing himself. I can ask the next question. Or even, you know, catching those signs that somebody isn't understanding the things that you're saying. Or that maybe the signs that they don't know a response or they're confused by your question. All of that can be developed in that beginning part of the interview, which is why it's so important to take that time. So... The narrative event practice, when you say gathering information, getting that baseline, understanding people's behavior. So it's not just a baseline for communication. If we're thinking about communication only in the things that people say, it's communication in general. What is their body language looking like right now? What are their, you know, vocal, verbal and non-vocal verbal responses to the questions that we're asking and the reactions that they're having? So Kate, I love how you set that up because you said at the beginning, if someone hadn't taken the time, like you did in this example, you wouldn't know how to handle that when the person is giving you details potentially about the abuse that they experienced. So giving yourself as the interviewer time to understand where is this person at, what's their baseline, and then even being able to recognize signs of distress or anxiety throughout the interview because you already have that baseline at the beginning and then you can address those things as they come up. So again, just more and more good reasons why we shouldn't skip narrative event practice. Mm -hmm. And I also think that with people with disabilities, just like we talked about in our rapport episode, people feeling like they can skip it because they don't understand the abilities of the person in front of them, but really allowing that opportunity, just like you would with anybody, for them to be able to answer your questions. And I, I say this in training all the time, too. I love when people knock my socks off, right? So if you go in thinking someone's not going to be able to do something, probably they're not going to be able to do it because you're not going to give them the opportunity, not because they're not capable. So mm-hmm. making sure we give people an opportunity to show us their strengths and gather that reliable information from them by getting this baseline right from the beginning in this really structured way that's evidence-based. It's just all really wonderful. You made me think of another kid with, with autism that I interviewed a few years ago, and she knocked my socks off completely with the narrative practice. It's one of the most detailed narrative practice that I've 
that I've seen in all of the interviews that I've ever done. And so thinking of this, and I know we talk about this a lot in our trainings from a strengths-based perspective of what people can do and give them that opportunity to knock your socks off and to, to show you, hey, yes, I'm a person with a disability, but I'm a great communicator and I'm a great provider of information and really challenging those assumptions and biases in ourselves and in our teams and working together to do that because whew, it was like 20 minutes long and she did not stop. But it helped me understand, oh my goodness, like she's really fantastic at beginning and small details, communicating even, you know, things about feelings. She communicated lots of sensory details naturally. And so I knew going forward into the interview, I was like, all right, we got this. We got this. Well, and I love that too, because we can work smarter with that. If we're talking less as the interviewer, that means that we're doing our jobs right. So to set up those prompts to know what questions are going to work for people in that neutral setting and then having it translate later in the interview is exactly what what we'd be looking for. And I think that's just another great example of, again, people knocking our socks off and going with that strengths base perspective is so, so important with everybody that we interview and checking our biases and making sure people have a have a chance to, to tell us what's been going on. So Kate, if people wanted more information, if they've never heard of narrative event practice or feel like they maybe have been skipping it, whether they do it consciously or, or subconsciously inadvertently, um, how could they get more information or what would you recommend they like read or check out or look into to learn more about this topic? Well, there are so many research articles out there, especially in the kid world. You know, narrative practice has been something that's long established and something that that lots and lots of training models talk about and spend time on, including ours, you know, both in the Find Advanced where we talk about, you know, interviewing folks with disabilities and in the Foundations model because we just think it's that important to spend that time, learn how somebody communicates, and really, you know, gather as much information about that person as we can before we jump off the deep, deep end and start talking about the topic of concern. So lots of research, it sounds like, in the kid world, and certainly uh, some research that folks could find maybe on our website, or we could put in the link uh, for for this podcast so that people know where to go to get more information. Awesome. Any, uh, any last words of wisdom on narrative event practice, Kate? Just do it. Just do That's it. That's all I have. Have to say, just do it. Please don't skip it. Please don't <laughs> skip it. Awesome. Well, we hope this has been helpful for folks. Kate, thank you so much for joining me and uh, being the awesome MCG representative as a narrative event practice nerd. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Model Consulting Group, visit our website, modelconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.